Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Morena team, hey. 23rd of December if you're picking this up when it drops, which is super exciting. Even if you're not a big fan of Christmas, I think we all can appreciate that, you know, we've only got like seven or eight more sleeps until uh, 2021 and we can say goodbye to 2020. Fingers crossed for a better year. Although, to be fair, I think most people probably said that about uh, the end of 2019. Anyway, I digress. Today on the show, I have my mate, Dr. Eric Helms, and I'm so excited to talk to Eric today. So for those of you who don't know Eric, Eric is in the science of drug-free bodybuilding and powerlifting, and he is a science communicator. He coaches natural athletes as part of Team 3D Muscle Journey and publishes peer-reviewed academic articles and blogs about physique and strength sport. He speaks at academic and commercial conferences, appears on fitness, nutrition, and exercise science podcasts like this one, and is active on social media. Very active. I pick up heaps of tips from Eric when I follow him on Instagram. So he's a PhD in strength and conditioning with a research focus on auto-regulating powerlifting training. His research focus for his second master's, because one was not enough, was on protein and macronutrient manipulation for dieting bodybuilders. And he did his first master's in exercise science and health promotion with a concentration on performance enhancement and injury prevention. Eric is currently a research fellow at the Sports Performance Research Institute New Zealand at Auckland University of Technology. And as an athlete, he competes in strength and physique sport, and he has earned pro status as a natural bodybuilder with the PNBA in 2011 and competes in the IPF as an unequipped powerlifter. Eric is such a wealth of information with anything related to dieting, physique science, protein, strength and conditioning, and you do not need to be a bikini model or a bodybuilder to really benefit from a lot of the, the take-homes that Eric has. He's so good at translating that uh, science into practice really for anyone who is interested in improving body composition. So today on the podcast you'll see that we talk around a whole host of issues in and around dieting, around training and around you know some of the real kind of key things that Eric has learned over the years. So without further ado, you can enjoy this conversation that I had with Eric Helms. Awesome. Dr. Eric Helms, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. It's great to talk to you, Mickey. Oh, do you know what? I was very, um, you were very gracious in allowing me the additional five minutes to go and grab a coffee. I've been on uh, client calls this morning and um, I was thinking, well, one, I'm a bit devastated because it is an instant coffee because I've run out of my mm. all-press plunger. And, uh, and then worst of all is that it's terrible instant coffee. It's some kind of dark roast Makona, which I only usually go for level five of Makona and someone bought the wrong one. 
because it has been a while since I've indulged in, well, I don't think indulged in instant coffee. I've been kind of reduced <laughs> to instant coffee is probably yeah, a better, way, a to probably a better way of describing it for sure. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and um, then there's no milk. And so I've got almond milk in there, which will curdle instantly upon adding to that uh, hot water. So, you know, but it has the caffeine. That's all you got. And honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I haven't such a rough morning. I I'm right there with you because uh, so I, before this, I was on our, our monthly audio roundtable for mass that we do for our research review. Didn't have time to put the kettle on, even with the five minutes you gave me before we started. So I'm just running on Pepsi max. So. Mate. I used to be so addicted to Pepsi Max. I don't know if you remember the Pepsi Max bullet that I used don't. to. Okay, so this is very, I mean, it was awesome for someone like me. I would have one every lunchtime with my chicken salad. And the bullet is the size of a 600 mil. Oh, but it's yes. Better. It is a liter of Pepsi Max. It was two bucks from the dairy, and I used to down one of them every lunch and love it. And that's uh, for a liter. That's a substantial amount of caffeine. So I want to say like the, the 355 mil is like 36 milligrams of caffeine or something like that. Oh, really? Yeah. That's it's got amazing. a little bit. Yeah. It's got a small amount. And you would be probably quite well brushed up on caffeine, I assume, because you, the latest podcast of Iron Culture that I listened to was all about caffeine. Yes. We had uh, my, my good friend, Ben Esgro, who's uh, got 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 a lot of experience in the whole supplement world he's had he's been at the helm of de novo nutrition he's got a master's degree in sports nutrition he's an rd and yeah. he's also recently well i guess less recently now completed a second master's in um i think it's pharmacological chemistry or something like that but it's like actual science not like yeah. you know what, what i do so oh mate and what i did which was like put fruit bowls in workplaces you know <laughs> And what do you know? People eat more fruit. <laughs> Boom. Here's your PhD, Dr. Mickey Willardin. Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Willardin, it's important because I only needed the, the math skills to count to 10 for my PhD. So nothing wrong with that. Yeah. What, what I will say, like, hilariously, actually, you and Omar made me laugh. You do, or like quite frequently, but particularly when you were like, Ben, mate, it's close to one o'clock. We've kept you up, but please run me through those biochemical pathways of caffeine just one more time. <laughs> yeah. I want to acknowledge that we're using you uh, and apologize, but we're still going to use you is yeah, essentially exactly. how that went. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, Eric, there are so many things that we could discuss today in my head, because you are, you know, it's such a wealth of information. You are one of these rare people who have two masters and a PhD because one clearly wasn't enough. The fact that you just told me Ben had a master's as well makes me think it's just what you crazy cats do. And maybe I missed out somewhere along the way, probably was, just wasn't smart enough to, to bother doing it. But your, even with our beverages that we are drinking today is kind of highlights to me some of the differences that you and I might've had on diet philosophies but just how my thinking has changed a little bit over the last couple of years around dieting, around flexible dieting, what it means. And I suppose some of the benefits of not being quite the zealot that I once was. And, mm. and I figured one of the best people to talk to about that is, of course, Dr. Eric Helms, who, wealth of information, all things strength conditioning, diet, protein, caffeine. What else are you a master of? Eric. Oh, well, I, I think, I think the whole idea that I'm super smart. And so I have all these masters is probably 
uh, better described by uh, uh, a lack of a life and, and a singular focus on, on lifting weights and being obsessive. But um, so, yeah, you know, people sometimes describe me kind of as you did as like, oh, you're an S&C guy or you're a nutrition guy or you're both. Mm-hmm. I think I've always been very, very tuned in to the bodybuilding and strength sport community. And that that crosses a lot of Venn diagrams, mm-hmm. but it is, in my opinion, quite specialized. So I like to describe myself as a uh, strength and physique sports scientist. Um, nice. Cause if we, if we get into like clinical nutrition, all of a sudden I sound far less knowledgeable, or if we get into like uh, S and C for sports that are outside of being uh, strength dominant, mm. the same thing, like, mm. like I've never written a plyometrics program in my life yet. I have, you know, CSCS. So that it is, it is a little misleading, you know? So no, I, uh, yeah. I appreciate that, but do you know what I think about physique nutrition and physique fitness and and I think you've described this before as well, is that we are looking at people in this extreme environment mm-hmm. and you were looking at people pushing the limits of what they can do on both the diet and the training front, but it absolutely has application to your kind of standard general population who are kind of just a toned down version of what you'd see up there on stage and all what they want to achieve out of their nutrition and their training. And um, the Sorry, more I don't that disagree I'm, with that. So, yeah. Yeah. And the, the more that we kind of, I like think about body composition and um, from a, both a training, but more so obviously from a nutrition perspective, um, there are so many lessons that you can learn from that physique science and the physique fitness. And it feels like science is constantly catching up on where the practice has been for like multiple years now, particularly in the space of diet, body composition and, and things like that. Yep. Like if you, uh, like, like one example, for example, is where, uh, there's a, there's been a lot of research on having a casein shake before bed to have like a slow digesting yes. protein thing. I remember reading about that, like the first month I started, uh, in the bodybuilding community, that yeah. was something that was postulated long before it ever entered, you know, the, uh, hallowed halls of, of peer reviewed literature, you know, yeah. so yeah. you're not wrong. Yeah. So Eric, like some of the questions I ask you today will probably, or our discussion points will be pretty rudimentary for someone like you, you know, and probably people who follow you and you have a mess kind of following, obviously, but for people who I might kind of engage with on a day-to-day basis, they're probably fairly new concepts or mm. they may have heard about them and don't quite understand them and, and, and things like that. So can, can I even just begin us off by asking what is this concept of flexible dieting kind of where does it sit in the realm of how people eat and just preface it with this idea that I'm quite known for being a low-carb advocate eating more minimally processed you know five years ago I would have said I was an advocate for paleo but you know you can't say that anymore so and actually I've changed my thinking in and around diet and come back to this kind of middle ground yeah Explain to me what flexible dieting is. Yeah, I, I like how you, well, for one, I think you find someone who hasn't changed their opinion, who's supposedly an academic over multiple years, and I would challenge that they're actually an academic, but it doesn't <laughs> yeah. sound like someone who, who is following the tenets of rational skepticism or empirical inquiry. It sounds like someone who's really good at confirming their biases. So kudos to you. Thank you. Um, and I would also like to say, like, you know, I've changed my opinion a lot. You know, you mentioned how 
you started with certain paradigms, shifted one way, shifted back, and eventually came to where you are now. And, and it sounds like you're acknowledging, hey, and it may not be this way five years from now. Um, I got into sports science in 2012, you know, mm. to, to do my MPhil. The first time I was really engaging with being doing empirical research, eight years after I'd been in the bodybuilding scene. So, so my views have changed a lot. And one of the things that I have tried to do is to merge what we know of as flexible dieting. If you actually read the research with what flexible dieting has meant in practice, because they are similar, but they're quite different and in some very important ways. So while you frame this question as, Hey, this is just the basics we need to know. It's actually a, a relatively nuanced answer and I'll mm. try to be concise with it. So if we start with the research perspective, flexible dieting is closest to a term known as flexible restraint. And back in the 90s, there was a, uh, a, a researcher group led by Weston Hoffer. And what they did is they took um, a, a really well-known eating uh, scale uh, that one of the, the subscales is restraint. And they said, you know what, there seems to be two different types of restrainers. Uh, and they modified the scale so that they could get scores for flexible restraint and rigid restraint or rigid dietary control or flexible control. You might see both terms. And they found that very divergent outcomes were predicted by whether or not you might be a flexible or, or rigid restrainer, even with a similar restraint score. Mm. And it led to this kind of line of research that said, hey, restraint is not the problem. And that's probably why we saw some you know, divergent findings with higher levels of restraint being good or bad, quote unquote. It's, it's how you restrain. So flexible restraint is typified by people who don't view diets uh, or being on or off a diet in dichotomous terms. Yeah. So someone who is uh, following or the flexible re restraint mentality in relationship with food kind of understands that, you know, if, if they went off the diet at lunch, uh, it's not just screw it. I might as well have a pizza, you know? Um, and they, they don't see it as let's go hard and fast. It's all in, yeah. let, let, let's do it. And if I, if I mess up, it's a problem. So rigid restraint is, is, is these very black and white views. It's typically, mm. um, adding a moral element to food, like food is either good or bad. Yeah. Um, it, it is, it, at the time, orthorexia was not a term, but I think it would share a lot of those terms, what we would describe as orthorexia today. Yeah. Um, you know, having kind of a moral judgment of what foods are and people based on what they eat. And most importantly, yourself, which yeah. is where I think uh, most of the harm comes. So really, really briefly, a lot of the associations they found were that BMI scores were higher in people who are rigid restrainers. Yeah. Um, weight loss maintenance was poorer. Eating disorders were higher. Uh, and in general, stress levels were higher. And then they extended this to longitudinal research where if they could shift someone more uh, at the beginning from being a rigid to a more flexible restraint person that mm. predicted one and I think three year weight loss maintenance. That's so that's the research. Yeah. Um, and bearing in mind what I was saying with regards to kind of the paleo thing and stuff, it sounds to me like, quote unquote, paleo, keto, um, carnivore, these will be I suppose, ways of eating that would fit into that um, kind of rigid restraint type model, right? Because it's about the rules, regardless of what those rules are, you're sticking to these rules, that moral element, like, you know, in that kind of almost 
I'm more virtuous because I'm, you know, paleo or I'm, dare I say, vegan or, or, you know, something like that. And then, of course, I'm just thinking about from a client perspective, people who say that they're paleo, but then they go and have, say, a quote-unquote cheat meal or go off. They're just going to binge, basically, mm-hmm. because, and I'm being, I'm being very generalist here, but, you know, you'd often see that kind of behavior because those rules are so unsustainable, but that's all of what, that's only what they know. It's when they kind of go off, go off, they go off big time. Yep. It's interesting that that the research shows that association as well with people who have eating disorders because it's not that rigid restraint, I would say, would would cause an eating disorder, but it it follows that someone who who may have a a predisposition to that disordered eating process are drawn to a type of behavior which sets them up these quite clear boundaries. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's an important thing is is a lot of the Westenhofer and and subsequent research was correlational in nature. So the Mm. the directionality is difficult. So for example, being a physique, physique sports scientist, we see much higher rates of eating disorders among physique competitors, which, you know, makes sense if you think about having to get that lean and having to follow a diet that almost must be uh, rigid at some point, even if, uh, which we'll get to, uh, even if you follow a quote unquote uh, like colloquial flexible diet where there's no uh, restriction on what food you can eat per se, you're just hitting certain targets for calories or macronutrients. When you have so little wiggle room with those numbers, it becomes yeah. rigid because very few things fit. Yeah. Um, but those relationships or, or those higher rates, I should say, of uh, disordered eating and body image issues in physique competitors, we can't just say that physique sport causes that because mm. it is equally as possible um, that people with those relationships with food and their body are drawn towards physique sport. Um, and it's not necessarily just the chicken or egg. It's probably a little bit of both. And more yeah. importantly, how do you cook your eggs and how do you raise your chickens? It's because, <laughs> yeah. because like you were saying, you, you could, you know, you could advocate paleo um, in a much less dogmatic way. It's just, mm. that's not the typical cultural meme we see typically yeah. It's that person who just started CrossFit last week who thinks that no matter what your athletic goal is or your fitness goal, CrossFit is is your one true Lord and Savior. And by the way, that comes with we have to fight the uh, the evil food engineering companies that are that are destroying the moral fabric of society. Yeah. And you can literally find if you go into some CrossFits, and I've seen it in multiple ones, they have this poster, mm-hmm. and it's basically what you should or shouldn't eat. Yeah. And on the left. They have like the silhouette of, of like a nuclear plant Oh no! and it says, and it has the nuclear symbol on the plant yeah. and it says like big food or like, oh, it, nice. so it's this, this idea that there's this, this agricorp mega company that is, that is equivalent to nuclear power in terms of its potential, you know, damage or, or like it's radioactive waste you're eating or something like that. And then on the other side, it's basically paleo. Yeah. But if someone was to come across and say, you know what, the data would support and it makes sense in terms of satiety signaling and, you know, like ad libitum food consumption to consume, you know, mostly single ingredient food items, uh, minimally processed foods to prepare your own meals and, and to, to minimize the number of things that have been pre-processed. Very few people would argue with that. Like, totally. you know, but that sort of is paleo. Yeah. Um, because paleo is not wasn't designed by anthropologists. It's not 100% in line with what like Homo erectus <laughs> ate, you know, or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 
essentially what they're saying is eat quote unquote real food. And I don't know many nutrition advocates that if you had them speak outside of some of the quantitative stuff and more qualitatively describe the diet, it would look like that. Yeah. So if we can agree that that is kind of what most good diets, quote unquote, look like, especially mm. for public health, maybe not performance in some cases, Yeah. Um, then it's just a matter of how do you package it? And yeah. if you package it with dogma, again, both can be restraint, but one can be rigid restraint. So I think, yeah. I think that dogma does more harm than people realize because they get these moralistic relationships. And I didn't come from like a keto or a paleo background, but I did come from a hardcore bodybuilding background. Mm. And the standard like approach to especially contest prep is you got like eight foods to play with. You know, you've got chicken, you've got lean fish, get like tuna and chicken is, is 90%, maybe some egg whites. And then you've got brown rice or, or kumra as your, mm. as your carb source. Um, you know, oats as well. That always makes the list for some reason. And then you've got like fish oil, avocado, nuts, and nut butters. And yeah. that is it, you yeah. know? So that is, of course, in broccoli and all the fibrous vegetables you want. Yeah. So like th that, that is no less harmful, even though it's a different paradigm. And I think moving away from that is the impetus for, for flexible dieting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, you've been in it for a number of years now, Eric. Do you still see that old school type approach to the, the diet in the gyms and with people that you talk to and the clients that you take on board and stuff, is this still the kind of dogma of it's got to be chicken, broccoli and rice for four meals of the day? Like, is that still what, how people are operating or is this idea of flexible dieting becoming more, um, going more into that um, space? It's made huge inroads, I would say. Yeah. Um, but I think the bodybuilding community, because it's such a niche sport, it is very, it's not a monolith. I think, I think to an outsider, most niche things seem monolithic. Like they seem like a unified culture. Yeah. Um, we could use CrossFit as another example. You know, mm. there's, there's people who don't like to use the word CrossFit because of the huge falling out recently yes. um, with CrossFit and they'll go, this, this is, this is, you know, functional fitness. And there's people, there are people who really don't like the idea of it being constantly varied to the point where it's like anti-periodization. You know, if you talk to like the people behind like OPEX, for example, and, uh, and, and their training approaches, like CrossFit is actually quite varied in, in how it's approached. And there's like, it used to be the grid league and all this stuff. And I, you know, I, I get a little exposure to that and it reminds me like, oh, that's true of everything Yeah. and bodybuilding similar. So there's tested and untested bodybuilding. There's natural bodybuilding. And then there's bodybuilding where it is assumed at the highest levels that there's a lot of use of anabolics mm. um, and there's bodybuilding in many different countries. So I think some of the, the changes in the English speaking natural bodybuilding world have been really good. And I think they have been quite in step with, with, with research and science. Um, I think I could take a play armchair anthropologist as to what's going on here. I think some of those changes haven't happened as quickly in non-English speaking countries because that just, it wasn't where that research was initially generated and the largest research pool is uh, English speaking journals. Mm. Um, and in drug-free bodybuilding, I think there is, it's a little more, it draws more people who are, don't have as extreme of personalities. Don't get me wrong. They're still bodybuilders. And they're looking for, to find ways to maximize their performance that doesn't include performance enhancing drugs. Mm. In the 
enhanced or, or, or untested side of bodybuilding, my experience has been that these, they're very much reliant on tradition. Mm-hmm. And to some degree that is almost required because it's not like you can look in the peer reviewed literature to find out, you know, what are the, the drug stacks that, yeah. that, that top level competitors are taking. So the armchair lab coats, that kind of attitude, no thanks. Like what are the champs doing? And what are these, you know, these underground coaches doing uh, with, with uh, you know, pharmaceutical manipulation. So anyway, the, it can, it can be a very different picture. So I think if you go to some of the, um, certain countries where some of this information hasn't, hasn't reached yet. Uh, or if you go to ranks where the, it is dominated by mostly enhanced bodybuilding culture, then you probably won't see the commonness of this, but I've competed and I've been to like world natural bodybuilding federation, you know, championships. And there is a majority of people I would say who are a lot more in line with, with what we're talking about and have less food restrictions uh, aren't drastically cutting water um, and and a lot of other things that I would say have been a a positive outcome from a more research oriented influence on the sport. Mm. Um, so you know, quote unquote flexible dieting has definitely penetrated um, that corner of bodybuilding. But this kind of goes back to the first question: is flexible dieting it had a very strong life of its own, uninfluenced to some degree by that research line mm. and. I don't know if your audience has heard of if it fits your macros. Um, yes, sure. So IIFYM grew out of science-interested promoters of fitness talking about this stuff, and it actually just started as an acronym back on the bodybuilding.com boards, uh, where people got tired, like ed- ed- educated folks who are you know well known in our community, um, uh, who would be answering questions, and they're very science-based. They weren't thinking of Westenhofer and colleagues, but someone would say, hey, can I have X, Y, or Z food? And the response was often, sure, if it fits your macros. Like, remember again, folks, energy balance is what matters. It's not eating these magic foods that thin your skin or have Mm. these specific properties, which was, I mean, this was, I I don't want to underestimate how much things have changed. So in the early 2000s, late 90s, all the way up to the mid 2000s, it was very rare to see someone in the kind of condition, and by that I mean leanness, on stage in the natural bodybuilding community where they would have, say, the male bodybuilding division, stride includes, and just really have no appearance of subcutaneous body fat. Yeah. And that has changed, um, not just from participation, but there seems to be a lot more people who are competing in the peak condition, and now it is um, more competitive. Yeah. And I think that is because people have stopped ascribing certain foods as having these effects on the body and more they're actually understanding elements like energy balance and preserving protein intake and having yeah. an appropriate rate of weight loss and some of these other things that are science-based. So that's a, a great outcome from if it fits your macros, which is basically saying, hey, look, the biggest rocks, uh, the biggest things, your foundational understanding of nutrition, you need to, to pay heed to energy balance. We need to understand the function of the macronutrients. And I think the, the arguments against it are, what about micronutrient quality? What about mm-hmm. nutrient timing? What about all these other things? But again, when If It Fits Your Macros first popped up, it was within the bodybuilding community. It was layered on top of, not as in opposition to that, that kind of traditional diet that was very regimented in terms of timing, mm-hmm. already high protein, very micronutrient dense. It was comprised yeah. all of these whole foods. And it was basically saying, hey, that's great and all, but let's not just assume because we've cut out 
you know, rice at this stage of our, our contest prep that we're in a sufficient deficit. And what does the deficit come from? What is energy balance? What are the function of the macronutrients? So if it fits your macros was basically saying, hey, all that's great, but let's hit our targets. And that's what's going to dictate uh, things. And when you need to make adjustments, you can cut from your carbs and fat, preserve your protein and take these other approaches or add cardio, whatever. And that became quote unquote flexible dieting because it mm. was juxtaposed against these food lists. The traditional bodybuilding approach is you get to have all those foods I listed, which is still very few foods. Mm. And then somewhere about halfway through, you eliminate a lot of the uh, those carbohydrates. And at the end, you eliminate also also all, all, the, all the fats. So the nuts yeah. come out, the butters, the avocados. And in the end, you're pretty much just eating lean meats and vegetables before you get on stage. Yeah. And that's a de facto creation of a linear re reduction in, in, in calories, but it certainly leaves a lot of people not in the shape they need to be when you also mm. couple that with diets that are too short and, you know, overuse or underuse of cardio, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So on the internet, if it fits your macros became flexible dieting and the research yeah. is still flexible restraint. Yeah. And I'm sure you and I, and maybe the listeners can think of many times we're simply weighing foods and hitting macros, but not having a restriction on what foods you can eat doesn't line up with flexible restraint. Yeah. I mean, myself, I've, I've chased down a grain of rice from the floor and put it back on the scale because I'm so hungry and starving that, that I can't have that happen. Or, you know, cut off one little bit of stem of broccoli to make it weigh exactly 100 grams instead of 101. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So with that in mind, then, is, is flexible dieting in a more user-friendly way? Is it about looking at numbers, right? Calories, macronutrient grams, and things like that. Is it a range that people would fall under rather than this is your particular target? So we've talked about it from a physique perspective. Mm -hmm. Do you use it with clients who you just generally work with out there and the, who are just wanting to be fit and active and, and kind of live their best life? You know, ironically, I think we talked about how many people look to physique competitors as, hey, that's a more extreme version of what I'm trying to achieve. I think a lot of the, some of the modeling of, of like the physiology of understanding how, how they got there, very important, mm -hmm. but the processes and the methods, I think can probably do more, more harm than good. Mm -hmm. So the average person who just wants to get fit, maybe takes it very seriously their ostensible goal is to get into a good level of fitness, maybe if they have aesthetic goals to look a certain way and maintain it, to live mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. You know, the bodybuilder's goal is to get as lean as humanly possible or as appropriate for the division, which even in the softest divisions is still really lean, unsustainably yeah. lean. Yeah. And then gain weight back purposely to put muscle on in the off season. And if they know what they're doing to gain body fat purposely, not just as an accidental side effect, mm. because the state they're in when they get on stage is counterproductive to building muscle. They're not sleeping through the night. They're experiencing all the symptoms of REDS, relative energy de deficiency uh, in, in sport. Uh, women are not having a menstrual cycle typically at that point. Uh, mm. Libido's down in everybody. Um, if you look at their testosterone levels in males, some case studies show it can drop to one quarter of where they were in the off season. So the idea of building muscle in that state, let alone being like a healthier, happier, fit human. No, absolutely not. You know, when you're in your best shape, you're probably in your lowest amount of health until you've, you know, fed up into your show. Then it's like slightly better. That's but like no different actually... from endurance athletes, really, when you're in peak condition and you are doing the type of training that allows you to perform at your optimal, 
that is not health either, right? Absolutely. Because of the type of training you're doing and in in everything else that's going on into it. Yeah. Yeah, you've peaked your you know stiffness if you're if you're a runner, VO2 in all categories, but at the cost of other things. Mm. Same thing as physique sport. You have peaked your your appearance at the cost of some other things. So they're purposely creating a cyclical diet. And the general population who is, if they're trying to get leaner, if they're trying to lose weight, if we look at that data, they are due to frustration and inability to reach their goals, creating a cyclical diet. You know, they don't want it to be there. They would love to, to lose the weight and maintain it. Yeah. Unfortunately, the vast majority of people regain weight. Mm. Um, so I think it's really important to understand that the methods that physique competitors use to get in shape are and always have been intended to be a, a, a way to lose fat effectively, maintain maximal muscle mass, and then it's over. Yeah. So I don't like to use tracking macros and tracking calories. Uh, and this is a change in the last five years. Some of the ways mm -hmm. I've changed my opinion, you know, for me, I came from a background of eating a very rigid food list. So tracking macros felt like liberation. Yeah. And then, you know, five years into tracking macros, even in the off season, I was like, what am I doing? This is a borderline eating disorder. Yeah. yeah. Um, I can't just eat anymore. Mm -hmm. So when I got away from that and that concurrently was happening as the intuitive eating, mindful eating kind of research started to come out. And when I started to realize that someone who has tracked macros, like a bodybuilder or gone through a contest prep and has kind of a structured uh, meal template, whether they're tracking or not, they don't need to be hitting these numbers. Um, they have habits, which they should, you know, maintain as kind of their foundation. Mm -hmm. And then they can be modified as needed. And they absolutely for a competitive bodybuilder should maybe start tracking macros when, when hunger gets out of control. And when those habits are, are victim to the drive of your body saying, I don't want to starve. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Then you start, you know, hitting a specific deficit, tracking weight loss and being much more quantitative. But for the, the general pop person, what I think the goal should be is to create behavior change mm -hmm. and then to try to get as much of the, the work done of a quote unquote diet without the person feeling like they're dieting. So when I first start to work with someone and they tell me, Hey, you know, my goal is to get bigger and leaner. If they're relatively new to lifting weights, uh, that can happen without huge, we don't need to push them into a huge surplus to gain weight. Mm. Um, so mainly what I look at is qualitative changes. It's not about taking things away. It's about creating new structure and adding things. So let's get a serving of, of, of lean protein uh, at, at every meal. Um, let's have maybe a meal schedule that includes like at least three whole meals, maybe one protein shake around training, or maybe four whole meals. And you can train between two of them. Um, you know, let's get a serving of fruit and or vegetables at every meal. And let's get, you know, a relatively you know, what we talked about earlier, mostly single ingredient food items. Let's get your activity levels up. Like if we look at what's the quote unquote obesogenic environment, mm. it's a combination of a lot of factors. It's environmental, right? So mm -hmm. it's external food cues, like food commercials, the smell of food when you walk by it, societal pressure to eat. You know, if you go out and buy food, you don't prepare it yourself. Um, they give you a portion and most people are going to eat at least 80% to 90% of the portion they're given because mm -hmm. they bought it and they've been told societally, this is the appropriate amount to eat. Yeah. When you make a meal at home, you make the amount you think you will want to eat mm -hmm. and it tends to reduce portion size. They also, we have a, a whole food industry that's based on customer enjoyment. We have food engineers who want your food to be hyper palatable. Mm 
Yeah. You know, if we go back five decades, something that tasted good is still satisfying. And what I mean by that is that the terminology you hear today, like I, you can, you can't eat just one. Like yes. In the last marketed, years. They're telling us in their marketing exactly the behavior that they've paid millions of dollars to these food engineers to be able to create. Can't stop Absolutely. at one. Yep. Yeah, sure. crazy idea, folks. But when you eat food, it's supposed to make you more satisfied and satiated and then you stop. But yeah. now we have foods that you weren't that hungry. You're like, I could eat. You have one and then you have a whole bag of chips. Interesting, think, actually, um, yeah. Eric, just on that. I, I was watching a YouTube video last year. I kind of watched the entire thing because I probably would have gotten quite bored, but it was an eating competition, like mm. the world eating competition for ice cream, I believe. And so I was watching this guy and, and he was, you know, normal average build because typically actually the people who do this, they're, they're not at the size that you might expect them to be, you know, um, he's eating, he's eating, he's way in front and then he stops and he's like, I don't know that I can eat anymore. And he's like, hang on, I'll have a, a serve of French fries. Thanks. And he gets a serve of French fries and he's like, he's like, I'm literally so full, but he, then he starts eating the French fries and that cutting through that sweet flavor and that, that actually enabled him to eat more ice cream just because I think the contrast between the two, I found that super interesting. It is, you know, and, and, and he, so, so a common trope you'll hear is that like uh, sugar is addictive. Mm. And if, if sugar was truly addictive, you would find people buying sugar packets and eating sugar, right? Yeah. yeah. Like you don't have people who are uh, addicted to heroin and they go, can I get some heroin cut with something else to reduce the, the potency? Yeah, yeah. Um, they want that pharmaceutical grade, right? If anything has addictive like properties about as far as I would take it and absolutely encourages overconsumption is the right combination of flavors and the right amount of flavors to create that hyper palatable experience. There was a cool metabolic ward study that Kevin Hall did where he found a, a group eating mostly ultra processed foods uh, and a group eating uh, unprocessed foods. And they did everything they could to match the diets. It's quite difficult to match those types of diets because mm. they typically have you know, more sodium, more fat, uh, more sugar, different energy density, which is also a part of it. So considering they tried to match it. So it's actually removing some of the ecological validity of how extreme processed foods can impact passive consumption. And people ate about 500 calories more yeah. uh, at libidum, uh, even in a metabolic ward. And mm -hmm. they ate the food faster. Yeah, so yeah. the thermic effect of food is lower. So the energy output when you're eating foods that are already processed, it's kind of basically been partially digested for you. Mm. How nice is that to think of it that way? Hmm. Uh, it tastes amazing. And it's it, it, it encourages more consumption. So yeah. I think we have the food itself. We have a lower cost and a higher energy count increasing portion sizes. So then how that food is delivered, what it costs, the availability of it. And then we also have a lower activity, you know, as yeah. a bodybuilding coach in 1990, I would have had to have been in a major city in, 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 a, in a Western world and working eight hours a day at a gym. Mm. I'd have a step count over 10,000 easily every day yeah. being yeah. on the gym floor. Today, it means that I'm really good with Google Sheets, you know, and I, and I have an unlisted YouTube video that I make for all my clients, right? Yeah. So my step count, if I wasn't to do anything, like our full-time coaches at 3DMJ, most of their step counts, like I think Jeff was saying, he's around th three to 4,000 a day. Mate, you have to be so deliberate to get in your steps. That is not going to happen by accident. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we think of that, if you're kind of a, come from a quantitative researcher perspective of like energy balance, you think of, oh, that's a problem because you're not burning so many calories. But the real problem is, is how uh, sedentariness affects appetite control. 
there's a, a really good study that was on Bing, Bengali mill workers. That's a classic study for anyone who's in, into physical activity. And they had the like the foreman who just sat there and the managers basically. And then they had they were considered the, the low activity. And then they had moderate, high, and very high. And the body weights were identical at the group level uh, in the all the, the the active factory workers, despite the fact that the that the energy expenditure was much higher and scaled linearly. So what they were doing is just simply increasing their caloric intake to match their energy needs and eating at roughly energy balance. But the, uh, sorry, the managers, they had the highest body weight in the group and a similar consumption of energy to the very high group. So it's what's called the J-shaped curve mm. of, of energy intake. And it shows that when you're physically inactive, when you're sedentary, it dysregulates your hunger and satiety. There's more latency and satiety uh, signals. Hunger levels kind of just float a little more midline. Mm. So if you combine all these things that we're talking about, this food environment, the nature of food, its cost, its palatability, uh, its energy density with lower activity, um, then we start to see why people will have homeostasis at a much higher body weight today than they would have in 1960. Yeah. So the goal when I'm working with someone who's general pop is to try to modify their environment and change their habits so they can remove themselves from that as much as possible, get their yeah. step count up, make them active, choose foods and, and cook their own foods, give them food skills really, mm. and be able to you know, have a diet that largely consists of vegetables, lean meats, fruits, grains, rather than things that have been pre-prepared for them. Now, the challenge though, is that you have to, again, going back to that first line of research from Westenhofer, when you package that, when you give that information, you also don't want to demonize the existing food and you don't want to pretend that they don't live in that environment. You're just doing your best to deal with it. Because we know if someone tries to completely eschew all of that, you're asking them to avoid a lot of food they might have grown up loving. You're asking them to have a difficult relationship with their family or their partner uh, you're, you're making holidays something that they dread. Mm. Um, you're creating a lot of potential pitfalls. So I think you have to teach them a little bit of both. Like, I do want you to, to have these non-quantitative. I don't want you to go to if it fits your macros. I want you to structure a lifestyle that would lead to a lower body weight or a leaner body weight uh, that is auto-regulated without needing to count. But I don't want to say you can't have frosted flakes. Mm. I don't want to say... You're not allowed to have X, Y, or Z, or if your friends want to go out to eat, you can't go with them or that Christmas is now scary. So I also want to teach you what is the deal with energy balance? What is the caloric intake in these things? So you can kind of play that card when needed. Mm. Like I can, you know, I understand how to do portion control. I can eyeball things. Like if I need to, if I'm in an environment where my auto-regulation would lead to overconsumption. You know, it, you know, if you're only there for a day, you go back to your normal diet, you'll just be less hungry the next day. Not a big deal. Mm. But to give someone tools when they do want to actually go through a purposeful fat loss phase or to give them tools when they're going to be on vacation or something like that, I think you can have the best of both worlds. And that, mm. that's, that's normally where I operate from. And that process looks like teaching them about, you know, reading food labels, tracking food, using MyFitnessPal, all that stuff, but not mm. giving them targets. Mm. So I think the problem when you look at some of the research on in like intuitive eating or the rates of my fitness pal usage in people with eating disorders 
And some of the issues I've ran into in the bodybuilding community is that people will replace their, their internal awareness of their satiety and hunger with an external cue like my fitness yeah. pal. So yes, the food environment is an external cue, but so is I'm going to hit these targets for protein, carbs, and fat, no matter what. And that's a problem. Yeah. Um, so I want someone like you can, like, I think if you look at the, the amount that you track as an outcome rather than something that you're dictating. So my goal is to feel a certain amount of satiety or hunger. I want to be kind of in the middle of that scale, not too hungry, not too full. And I want to change my habits to eat these mostly quote unquote real foods. And I want to have a, a consistent schedule of eating. Um, that's great. And I can also track my fitness pal and I find out how much I eat. So, yeah. oh, that's interesting. I tend to eat between 23 to 2,600 calories and maintain my body weight. Uh, and it also serves as an audit. Like, oh, I noticed my protein's a little low. Okay, I'll consume a higher serving of protein in each one of my meals, but then I'll still eat ad libitum my carbon fat sources. There can be that happy marriage where one informs the other. You're not a slave to your targets for fitted macros. You know what you're eating. And then when you do need to go through a phase of a purposeful caloric surplus, if you want to put on muscle mass or deficit, if you want to cut, then you can play a little more to the numbers and manipulate it more quantitatively. Yeah, no, that sounds great. And it's really, I find the whole macro counting thing really interesting because I've come from a background of never having done it myself, even in all my years of, of as a nutrition professional, like I, Having said that, though, I think it was just ingrained in me that I, I I had a knowledge of what was in food and the calorie counts for a lot of things. And I think you'll see this with a lot of nutritionists. And I don't know if you are similar to me, Eric, coming from your bodybuilding, you might well be in that there's a certain level of obsessiveness and restriction that is just naturally part of our personality that kind of lends itself well to what we end up kind of doing so I think in part um, and this isn't news to anyone that's listening to this I'm sure is you know that's what kind of gets drives people into the nutrition space is this interest slash obsession around food and calories and, and things like that so I think historically we know as younger and experienced more problematic behaviors around that probably led me down to a path of never really tracking but always having a sense of what was kind of going in in the last couple of months recognizing and using tracking is the way that you describe it like where am I at with regards to my protein which I'm constantly telling people they need to eat more of you know what is my protein intake like am I doing enough to support my energy output whilst training for the ultra and it's been super useful from that perspective it's allowed me to look at it and go you know yeah you might spend have spent 20 years in this industry but hey your protein's really low you actually need to increase that and have a look at you know when you're getting it in and, and things like that so from a personal perspective it's been actually almost liberating to track macros rather than the uh, rather than restrictive because then it has also made me go I need to eat more what am I going to eat rather than I'm only restricted to this amount of calories how am I going to manipulate them to allow me for the most kind of satiety and things like that I think that for endurance-based um, athletes, we're volume, a lot of people are volume eaters and a lot of women particularly are volume eaters. And so if you place a volume eater in an endurance sport, the, the outcome of that is likely that they will under eat because where they're getting their volume from is fruit and vegetables, which is great, but they're not providing the nutrients and actually the calories that you need to, to kind of support it. Yeah. And I think anytime you have a 
extreme goal, which I would absolutely classify in endurance, even the casual, like I want to do a half marathon. Like I think Mm. juxtaposing training for a half marathon to what you may have been doing before, like maybe a gym session once or twice a week, but more kind of general fitness, there's a big difference just in terms of the volume of work and the, and the energy expenditure. And this is where you can see the divergence between nutrition and sports nutrition, the, the standard dietitian or nutritionist who is looking for public health outcomes Mm. and is trying to help people uh, not find themselves just kind of slowly gaining weight over time because of the environment we live in. They are trying to get people to become volume eaters, you know, Mm. and they want to get their fruit and vegetable intake up, make sure they're getting enough micronutrients, you know, replacing a lot of quote unquote empty calories with things that are micronutrient dense, everything we've talked about. But as soon as you go to an extreme goal, like um, supporting sports performance, um, now all of a sudden it is very challenging to have that as a habit set, great habit set, don't get me wrong, but to actually meet the demands of your sport. Yeah. So, you know, this is a funny thing. It happens for some, but not all in bodybuilding because bodybuilding, it, you know, we talk about how, you know, weight regain happens Yes. and anytime, like the biggest predictor of someone gaining weight is whether they've dieted, yeah. you know? So the pendulum swinging back, right. Mm. And dieting every off season, except for your first one, uh, which precedes your first contest mm-hmm. just came after, or wasn't too, too long after, maybe if you take an extended off season, this isn't the case, but it, like, if you're competing every other year or you're competing every year, you it's only months or at most maybe a year ago that you were starving. Mm. <laughs> so you find it quite easy to eat a lot of food of any type in the off season. But if you're competing less frequently, um, or if you are someone who has really kind of got their head around the, you know, doing bodybuilding in as healthy of a way as possible, then you're going to find that similar problem, you know, like, so some people who are quote unquote hard gainers in the off season, they're trying to eat enough food. And if they have a really ingrained habit of, of eating in a, like a healthy volume based way, um, they kind of have to use some of the tricks of the trade that's in the, not the trade, I should say the environment that that yeah. is out there. So now go eat a burrito, you know, mm-hmm. like exactly like have ice cream and then have something savory and then go back to ice cream. Like you notice in that, in that, in that YouTube documentary, do things like eat fast, uh, eat distracted, like our RD mm. Steve Taylor on a recent 3DMJ podcast, like when he has someone who's really struggling to gain weight, he tells them to, you know, watch, watch comedies while they're eating because it's, it's, it's distracting and they'll look at the food and they won't even notice. So it's doing all the things that have led to us having a expanding waistline in, in the Western world, do that on purpose. Mm. Um, so I think that's just really interesting. And yeah you know, you were alluding to how the problematic behaviors around if it fits your macros, they almost always come when if it fits your macros is used for weight loss. Yeah. So when you're, when you're tracking for the purposes of, you know, weight gain or sports performance, because you're not trying to create a deficit by hitting certain numbers, it becomes another metric versus this kind of thing you put on a pedestal. Like I've got to hit these three numbers. That's my deficit. Mm-hmm. It's not working. What do I change? They, they take on a really special meaning and can very easily become vehicles for obsession when, when you're dieting using them. But tracking outside of the context of trying to diet, I think can be, uh, like you said, a very useful metric for, for sport. Now, Eric, I'm going to change tack a little bit from, based on kind of what I was um, uh, sent you through. But I'm really interested because you you competed a number of times last year, didn't you? Yeah, 2019, I did a show in April, two in July, and one in August. 
that is a long period of time to be prepping and competing in your sport. Like, how did you approach that with regards to your dieting side of things? Like what were some of the key elements of, you know, what we've just been discussing that you found really helpful or even, or maybe not helpful um, with regards to that? Yeah. I'm actually really glad you asked me that because the, I, I'm the type of dude who I'm kind of a late adopter of something until I get convinced. Mm. So, but I'm more so with myself than I am with my clients. So my yep. clients, I would say that I'm, I'm much more willing to go out on a limb when I'm, cause I care about someone else's outcome. I'm willing to do it, but I need to be really be convinced for myself. So it's this kind of weird inversion of conservatism with, yeah. with myself versus my clients. So anyway, I've been researching uh, eating behavior and all the stuff we've been talking about for probably the last half decade. Mm -hmm. um, but interestingly enough, for the last half decade, I have been doing my PhD and my master's and I haven't competed in, in, in physique sports. So my last season before 2019 was 2011, the year I, before I started my MPhil. Uh, and then I did my MPhil with my PhD. And then, um, you know, I had a hip injury and then I was like, all right, now I'm going to do uh, a bodybuilding season and get back into it. So I had all this time of thinking differently about food and time to get convinced and time to actually implement that with clients. So I decided, oh, you know, I get to try this on myself. So for the first two months of my prep, um, through all of January, all of February, I didn't track at all. Mm -hmm. um, and I dropped a solid five kilos off of just kind of going by feel, if you will, following my, uh, my typical structure, not yeah. eating out. Yeah. And really not having any additional carbohydrates or fats, I think is a, is a good way to view it. So, so I had protein intake for you when you were in that kind of January, um, February phase, those first couple of months, would you, would you have known what it was around roughly to help with your sport? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is it's hard for me not to know, even yeah. though I wasn't, no, I, I didn't know within five grams, my, mm. my, my macros, but I would, I could probably have, uh, figured out my calories within a you know, maybe a 20 second period of thinking yeah. in a given day. Um, and I probably could have told you without thinking at all with reasonable accuracy. So I was still consuming, you know, I was consuming four meals a day and one protein shake. Mm -hmm. And each one of those meals a day was protein based. Yeah. So like my last meal of the day was, you know, a big Greek yogurt. That's like 40 or 50 right there. The protein shakes are around 40. Um, and, uh, you know, breakfast and, and, and lunch would have been around 30 or 40 each. So definitely within a range that's appropriate for me. I compete around 80 kilograms when I'm shredded. Yeah. And then my caloric intake was where it was. It would go up and down. And I think that's the key point here is that per my expenditure and my hunger levels, I would let my, 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 my caloric intake fluctuate a bit. It didn't change a whole lot because my structure is pretty similar, mm. but I would have another piece of fruit if I felt like I was you know, like, wow, well, I'm really hungry today. I'm only, mm. I'm only like two weeks into the diet. I shouldn't be starving. Oh yeah, that's right. I was walking all over AET today or something like that. Yeah. So when I had those intuitions that I was hungrier, uh, or I'd been really sedentary that day that needed, I would just up or down regulate uh, my food intake. And it wasn't that I was trying to be, like I said, on a hunger scale of one to 10, trying to be in the four to six range. Yeah. I was trying to be like in the three to five range, accepting a certain level of hunger. So that got me down to really good condition. Um, you know, something where I would, would have been comfortable for like a fitness model photo shoot, but, but mm -hmm. not like get on stage, try to get a pro card in a, in a competitive show type of deal. So around eight weeks in, I think we're looking at beginning of March, end of February, I started tracking mostly to feel, to, to not have like a little 
nervousness in the back of my head. Like, let me yeah. make sure, make sure I'm crossing, you know, crossing all my, my T's and dotting my I's, make sure I'm, I'm, I'm losing fat at a good rate. And also to give more, more information to Alberto, my, my colleague and, and often coach when I, when I diet down so that he knows where I'm at uh, and he can, you know, see me visit uh, visually and then correlate that to what I, I'm, what data I'm giving him, mm-hmm. you know, that, that did change some things. It would allow him to understand, well, you're looking really, really flat, like low in muscle glycogen. You look smaller than normal. Uh, I think we're going to have a, a refeed day. We're going to try to get that back up. I don't want you that flat at this stage, et cetera. So the first thing I incorporated was an actual approach of not tracking for the first mm-hmm. couple months of prep. And then when I was about two and a half months out from my first show, I started tracking. And then when I got into true, like competitive stage condition, which was shortly after my first show, my first show was a bit of a warm up. I was in good shape. I was, a, no one would have said like, wow, you're out of shape, Eric. They, they, they might've acknowledged that I could have gotten leaner, but I certainly was an acceptable stage condition. So sometime in June is, oh no, sorry, May, I hit peak condition, if you will. Mm-hmm. And then we started walking my food back up and the goal was to roughly maintain that condition. So I'm eating roughly around energy balance. So that period, you know, then it got a little looser, but I was still roughly tracking. So I went mm-hmm. from basically not tracking and eating by, uh, by hunger and satiety and keeping it, you know, a little more hungry than normal to tracking and, and being pretty specific to then loosely tracking, where I was just kind of like calories and protein and making sure I was eating enough and not taking it too far because mm-hmm. at a certain point, like your hunger and satiety signals just tell you one thing and that's eat more, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I kind of went, went across the full gamut, which was, uh, which was cool. And it was my most successful season mm. uh, to date, both in terms of my uh, competitive outcomes and also how I compared to how, how I looked previously. Yeah, for sure. And I, I was listening to a couple of podcasts, unsurprisingly, and I think that you were talking about how low your calories got in some of those kind of real peak times in the lead up to your show. Mm. And then also, Eric, you talked about that idea of just before I asked you that question about this kind of insatiable hunger, you know, because you've been on this calorie deficit for so long. Did you experience that insatiable hunger post show? And like, how do you deal with that? It was greatly reduced. Ironically, the worst insatiable hunger and the largest drive to gain weight that I could not control was my first season. Mm. And that was also when I got the least lean because I, mm. I didn't really know what I was doing. I, I mean, I got lean, don't get me wrong, but I wasn't, I've, I've been a lot leaner. Yeah. Um, and I put on 22 kilos in two months. Whoa. Um, yeah. This time I put on 10 kilos in two mm-hmm. months and then it was a very slow rise. Now I'm, I'm still only like uh, maybe 14 kilos over stage weight. Yeah. You're, you know, a full I'm over a year after my last competition, 14 months mm. after my last competition, I've been hanging out here for you know, six months or something like that, if not longer. So the, uh, the hunger is interesting. So there are multiple components to it. Uh, there is the way you feel just from getting leaner. Mm. There's also the way you feel from acute caloric deprivation. I went through the period where I, where I got in great shape in May. Um, that was me moving to getting into like really, really lean condition. And I was trying to get it done and dusted and then bring my calories up for the rest of the season. And there were on average, like 1400 calorie days, even including my high days mm. for a couple of weeks, which is really low calories for someone who's 80, 80 kilos. Mm. And I think it's easy to focus on the highs or sorry, the lows and, and forget the highs. 
because then only, you know, two months later, my regular intake was 25 to 2,800 calories every day mm. with about 3000 less steps per day, less cardio, more food. Mm -hmm. And I was hanging around 80 kilos from all the way from late May until August. So I had like 12 weeks at a much higher calorie intake after yeah. that final push to get lean. And by far the worst I felt was when I was pushing to get really lean. Mm -hmm. um, although the even it's interesting. So it's not just the food you eat and for, for a, a mini physiology lesson for people, um, you know, leptin and ghrelin are kind of these two competing hormonal signals that we get in our body. Uh, you know, ghrelin being a, a hunger signal, leptin being a kind of master um, hormonal and metabolic controller that tells you you're, you're fed. Um, eating food suppresses ghrelin, increases leptin, right? Um, in, in general, there are some foods that are probably a little different, like we talked about earlier. Mm. However, leptin is also secreted by ad adipose tissue. Yeah. So that means that the only time you're going to have even decent leptin levels is like immediately during the meal and in the postprandial period. So one of the things I experienced, I was using uh, what we call refeeds in the bodybuilding community during throughout the diet uh, until I got to that kind of maintenance steady state where basically all days were refeeds. So, you know, I'd have, you know, let's say or semi early in my prep, I'd be having multiple days at say 1800 calories. Mm. And then I'd have a handful of days, like two or three in a row. Uh, at 24, 25, 26, 100 calories, somewhere in mm. there. And mm -hmm. that's kind of what my diet would look like. Replenish glycogen, replenish my psychological willpower, things like that. I noticed that when I was in good shape, but not shredded condition, by the second or third day of having a refeed, I would feel pretty much normal. Uh, mm. If you could you know, drop my, my brain into the body of me in the off season or on that day, I wouldn't notice the difference. But if we're talking like July, even though I'm eating 2,700 calories every day, mm. I still felt off. You know, I was waking up in the middle of the night. Uh, my libido was totally absent. Mm. I would just feel in general, a little bit lethargic, a uh, little foggy in terms of my brain. And I just, you, you don't fully recover when you're that lean. And that gives you an indication that uh, there is, there's probably some in independency there. Like it's not just Oh, if you eat enough, you'll be fine. It's not just yeah. energy availability. Like if you look at the, the research on female athletes, especially, and when mm. they start to experience hormonal disruption, most of it points towards, Hey, it's about energy availability. Are you eating enough food for your current energy expenditure and, and, uh, and, and work output, but they're not typically studying people who are uber, uber lean and who yeah. have metabolically adapted downward yeah. to where maintenance is actually what would be considered below the threshold for, um, you know, sufficient calories. You yeah. can be in a state of relative energy deficiency, but actually maintaining body weight. And I think mm. that's almost the definition of, of what, what occurs even when it maintenance in, in, uh, in physique competitors. Yeah. So that, and that feels different. Yeah, for sure. And in what you described there about, um, that um, kind of metabolic adaptation was something that I would like was wanting to explore with you just because that's something which I 100% happens with endurance sport you've described it personally yourself as you're actually eating pretty high calories compared to where you were at that 1400 yet because your body fat was so low that change in that hormone balance was still um, kind of lingering. So there was certainly, and the symptoms you describe as being the reds, 
kind of symptoms that we would see in that energy kind of deficit, yet your energy level was actually, or your calorie intake was actually, you know, wasn't ridiculously low. Whereas for like people who might be um, endurance sport athletes, or actually I see this a lot just in general population of people who are following these legit 1400 calorie diets um, yet struggling to lose body fat. And in part, this is because they're trying to stay so low calorie that they only manage it for half of the week and the other half of the week they might be at 3,400 calories because they just can no longer restrict. But in part, I think it is because they their body has just adapted to such a low calorie intake, they're not actually in a deficit even though the calories are as low because of the changing in their energy cost of what they do day to day. Yeah, I think I always try to help people to kind of merge the concepts of low energy availability and metabolic adaptation because mm. they, they work in sync. Yeah. So we, we tend to talk about metabolic adaptation as just thinking about hand waving magic and now you don't burn as many calories, right? Mm. Uh, and then we think, oh, low energy availability, uh, you're not eating enough for your energy expenditure and you experience these side effects that affect your hormonal endocrine function, immune function, uh, mood, uh, injury risk, all this other stuff, Immun mm -hmm. uh, immun immunological, you name it, it affects pretty much everything. And they kind of live in these separate worlds. Uh, and probably because the researchers actually come from separate worlds, you know, metabolic yeah. adaptation, they're primarily looking at does a lower BMR and lower TDEE, total daily energy expenditure, does that predict or cause uh, weight regain or does it prevent weight loss? Mm. That's their own little world. You know, that mm -hmm. that's, that's a line of research. And then the the low energy availability stuff like Luke's and, uh, and all the, the folks over there, they're looking at reproductive function and health yeah. and athletes who are not necessarily dieting. Mm. So, and never the twain shall meet. Right. But when you really think about what's going on, metabolic adaptation, well, how are we actually reducing our energy expenditure? Yeah. It's from shutting lights off in the building. Right. Mm. So, mm -hmm. so low energy availability describes the experiences and the outcomes of metabolic adaptation. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll define that a little more clearly. So metabolic adaptation, there are small drops in, in BMR, basal metabolic rate, but there are large endocrine changes. Um, we see reductions in thyroid, reductions in leptin, increases in ghrelin, uh, tons of, of changes in appetite hormones that basically say you're not as satisfied, you need to be eating more. Uh, we also see large reductions in uh, the uh, uh, NEAT non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So you, like you mentioned, there is actually increase in the efficiency of low energy or sorry, low intensity activities. So mm -hmm. walking, cycling, daily chores, start burning less calories and even be predicted by your body weight. Uh, doesn't hold true for higher intensity activities, unfortunately, because that would really benefit athletes, but mm -hmm. yeah, then you just wouldn't need as much food, but you do. Um, so you burn less calories from becoming more sedentary and actually becoming more efficient. Mm. Um, and it affects all this stuff. So I think if you just look at the caloric, caloric expenditure, you forget what is causing it. It doesn't just disappear. The actual experience is you're no longer producing like testosterone. You're no longer yeah. like producing sperm. You're, you're no longer dropping eggs anymore. Like you're, you're yeah. a menorrheic. So the way I like the analogy, I like to think of is if you think of actually it's quite appropriate given the, uh, the recession we're in right now with COVID. If you think of a, a company that's trying to stay solid to not actually mm -hmm. collapse and go bankrupt. They've got a building, right? They've got an accounting department. They've got a human resources department. They got customer service and they got the actual people doing whatever that business is. 
the first thing they do, you know, we'll make a minor change. Uh, we're going to switch to uh, low, low cost lighting and we're going to put it on a motion sensor. So, you know, the accounting department, they're just typing, nobody moves for a while, the lights go off and someone has to wave their arm, you know, mm -hmm. so that's you noticing some of these effects, mm -hmm. right? Then things get even leaner and they fire half the accounting department, right? Mm -hmm. So you're working more hours, a few more mistakes are being made, um, but there's not enough to pay for four full-time accountants. Next thing we know, human resources gets down to just one person. Patty's sitting there all by herself, just waiting for something bad in the company to happen so they have a job. So you feel this. That's the equivalent of, of this uh, Patty having a bad job experience, right? Mm. Um, now we're going to actually restrict time. So some people are going to be on furlough. We're, we're going to actually, everyone's got to get out of the building at five because we're turning off the power. All this stuff doesn't go unnoticed. It keeps the company from going bankrupt, mm -hmm. the equivalent of the athlete still being able to, to live, um, but you absolutely feel it. You notice the difference. Your, your job satisfaction goes down, right? Mm. So I think that is the experience of what is causing metabolic adaptation. These symptoms of low energy availability, your body conserving and turning off quote unquote non-essential function like reproduction, mm. uh, your interest in, in, in whoever you're attracted to normally, right? Uh, that all goes away so that you can survive, yeah. Uh, that's kind of your body's perspective. And that results in a reduction in calories. And that's how it works. So I think that's why you can have someone who is at energy balance, um, but with all these adaptations present. The reason why they're at balance is because half the lights are off. Yeah. So when people get uh, low energy availability, uh, or I should say, um, yeah, if, when they get low energy availability and energy balance confused, they get a little like, how could I be having symptoms of low energy availability? I'm maintaining weight. So I'm not in a deficit. Yeah. Well, the reason why you're not in a deficit is because your body's shut down half the lights. Yeah. So it, it is really does come down to getting above certain, you know, what are viewed as thresholds. If you look mm. at some of the math behind it of intakes. So the way we actually quote unquote calculate uh, energy availability is you take uh, kilograms of lean mass mm -hmm. uh, and then you take the amount of exercise activity you're doing. And if you are, and you subtract that from your, your energy intake, and if that's above say like 30 kcals per kilogram of, of lean mass, that's considered enough for most female athletes. And that's going to obviously vary from person to person. Yeah. What counts as exercise or regular activity? It's imperfect, but it's a decent metric. If you're someone who's dieted down to a certain amount of lean mass, and in that process, you've experienced metabolic adaptation and by proxy, uh, low energy availability, and then you bump up your food to maintenance, it'll probably still be below that 30 K cal threshold. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and if you were to get above, you would start gaining weight and then eventually you would, your weight would settle and yeah. you would be at a sufficient energy intake. And that is when you stop experiencing those symptoms. So some people simply put want to be leaner than is realistic or healthy or sustainable. Yeah. And Eric, I imagine you must see this a little bit with what you do, because of course you do work with in that physique space when you uh, kind of come across or you're, you're talking to a client about this, you know, energy adaptation or metabolic adaptation, what is your process for getting them out of it? And indeed you talked about how you were able to maintain the same body weight yet bump your calories up to be almost double what they were on your lowest of low days how do you go about that process and what's a real and what are the, some of the expectations around it? Yeah. So if you are really, really, really lean and you're mm. bringing yourself out of a deficit and an energy balance, you are going to see an uptick of energy expenditure. So mm. the math doesn't, doesn't add up. If you think of it as a static system, 
For example, I was losing maybe a little over a half a kilo a week eating 1400 calories. So that would predict my maintenance at 1900. So how the heck did I get all the way up to 28? Mm -hmm. Math doesn't make sense. You didn't track, right? That's the internet's answer. Um, the reality is, is that we're seeing both ends of energy adaptation, right? So we're seeing me minimally adapted for, for one way and maximally adapted or not maximally, but rebounding the other way. Uh, we know from overfeeding studies that metabolic adaptation can go the other way, you know, trying to gain weight at a rapid pace or beyond uh, what someone's homeostatic body mass is, uh, they will defend that. Not everyone uh, called a spendthrift or thrifty metabolism, but it goes both ways to some degree. We're much more successful at defending body weight loss for evolutionary reasons. But the experience that most people have when they get really lean for competition, they start to feed up is that you get much more than you'd expect out of going upward. So some of the, the really gnarly levels of, of lights being turned off goes away. Some of the, you know, Patty's no longer working alone. The lights go back on, but they don't get all the way back until you actually gain back a reasonable amount of body fat. So the experience for someone who's lean, a competitor, what I experienced was being able to increase my calories more than a thousand per day on average, despite the fact that you would, by the math, think I could only go up 500. Mm. Um, some of that's purely just the thermic effect of food. You know, it takes yeah. about 10% of the energy we eat. Uh, to actually process the energy we eat. So if I increase my calories by a thousand, I really only see a 900 calorie increase in terms of uh, energy utilization, mm. right? So anyway, uh, and then the rest of it is, is what would be described as true uh, metabolic adaptation the other way. This does happen, but to a less extreme degree, because you're not as tanked. Uh, if you're someone who dieted to a place where you're happy uh, with your physique, like you're at a, a sustainable body fat, and then you go up, you'll see a, a small bump upward. Um, you know, if you were, let's say, we'll use myself as an example, you know, let's say I just wanted to maintain 89 kilos, which is a pretty lean, lean state for me. That's about six kilos down from where I'm at now. And I'm certainly not over fat at the moment. If I wanted to walk around and kind of like, you know, like good off season condition, then, you know, like attending a wedding condition, we'll call it that. Uh, if I wanted to walk around like that, I wouldn't expect to be able to increase my calories by a thousand from dieting. It'd probably be more like 600, 700, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. get a little more, little more, more punch for, for than I'd expect. Right. So I think you can expect that. Um, but you don't exactly know what the magnitude is going to be. So what I typically recommend people do is they just eliminate the mathematical deficit, yeah. you know, based on weight loss and then start nudging it up. And when you actually start to see, your weight gain start to, to come up more predictably, then you taper back down or, or just hold off there. And then you just hang out, you know, yeah. um, and you'll get for a while feeling better and better and better. And then if you're still hungry and you find your food focus is there and you're not sleeping well, you're probably trying to sustain something that's unsustainable. Yeah. And the beauty of some of these subjective symptoms and that if we understand that low energy availability and metabolic adaptation are two sides of the same coin, that means we can use the subjective experience of low energy availability. Some of these, uh, you know, poor sleep, hunger, and a lack of satiety that can tell you when you're trying to maintain too lean yeah. during a diet. It just tells you that you're dieting, yeah, you know, sure. and but, but after the diet, if you are trying to get to a place of maintenance and you're still experiencing even like lightweight versions of what you experience at during dieting multiple months after it's over, you may be either taking an approach that isn't very balanced with your, with your nutrition or needs to be sorted a little bit, uh, or just as equally potentially likely, uh, is that you are just trying to stay too lean and 
absolutely something I run into, especially in the newer divisions in physique sport, like uh, men's fitness, men's physique and, and bikini, mm -hmm. uh, where you don't have to get quite as lean. You don't have to be really, really muscular. Uh, and it is almost kind of like watching or walking around in almost a sustainable condition is what people try to do in the off season. So the diets can be shorter. I think there's also some sociology in play there. People mm. who typically, and this is just me, armchair sociologist. It's, I don't know any data to back this, but people who compete in men's physique in bikini are a little more interested in the, the beauty aspects of it, the more pageant aspects. Um, there is no normal part of society that says being huge ripped shredded and veiny with lines in your butt is attractive yeah, um, yeah. but looking good in board shorts or a bikini absolutely mm. that's something yeah. like the vast majority of the goals people get when they work with a personal trainer is they want to look good in their birthday suit mm -hmm. so i think there is certainly people who maybe can't divorce their sense of self-worth or their body image from their competitive physique to the same degree bodybuilders who are successful. And I, I do mean in the bodybuilding division, they're, they're pretty good at not caring too much what they look like in the off season or being happy with their off season body. Yeah. Cause they see attaining this freaky physique uh, to use probably the appropriate word as something that is akin to running faster or throwing a football or, or, or baseball or, or uh, some kind of athlete, extreme athletic feat. You know? Absolutely. That's kind of like what you wouldn't continue to go and do your four hour runs if you've got no training, no like ultra coming up that you're actually training for. Same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. You would stay in the, the, the condition that came from the amount of endurance training you like to do. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And, and that's yeah. a nice base to kind of start from. And while Eric, we're talking about you and your physique kind of experience, I think what those, uh, the symptoms that you're talking about that people can kind of look to is as to whether or not their diet is sustainable or what they're trying to achieve from their diet is sustainable is absolutely across the board. This isn't just the domain of someone wanting to compete in physique. This is if you are out there and you are, you know, you've got some body composition goals, regardless of, of your sport, um, or even if you're in a sport, you just like to keep fit. If those, if you are trying to sustain like a, a diet that results in inability to sleep, you know, hangriness, low blood markers of like iron and zinc because of course with more food comes micronutrients and then those are the things which you kind of want to explore and kind of have that honest kind of discussion with yourself I suppose as to you know is this unsustainable and that whole thing you mentioned about self-worth being tied up into a body kind of image I you know or a weight on the scale I see it all the time and almost I feel like some people disassociate some of those subjective markers with what they see on the scale like I'll have a client catch up and I'll be like first tell me how are you feeling how's it going and they're like my energy's great you know I I feel really good my clothes are fitting well but I'm so disappointed because the scale only registers like you know one kilo down for the month you know or I'm staying the same weight so there's this real disconnect between the um the worth of different metrics as well i think absolutely and it's very uh it's very obvious when you get into the extremes of it where uh, especially with people are, are influenced by things like instagram you know one of the things where I, while i do understand that people look up to bodybuilders i think seeing a lot of images and people in, in, in bodybuilding condition as becoming the norm getting mm. exposed to that regularly i think can really increase that disconnect mm. you know so the conversations i end up having 
with a lot of my competitors who struggle with trying to stay too lean is exactly around that. You know, like I was on a podcast or actually I was on an Instagram live recently and I mentioned the process of gaining weight purposely post-competition and how, uh, and, and the person I was with commented on how that must be hard for people when they're just in the best shape of their life. And I said, and that's exactly the perspective I push back against when the client views it that way. Mm. You're not in the best shape of your life. Mm. You're in the best shape for your sport right now, mm-hmm. but for life, you're in terrible shape. And, and then I asked the person to think about their values. What do they believe? You know, mm-hmm. if they have kids, what do they want to model for their children? What do they think society should be telling people? And I try to create that, that dissonance uh, to where they can see that their own behaviors don't line up with, with who they want to be and how they wish the world was. Mm-hmm. So if you can only appreciate your body or like the way you look when you're in this level of leanness that is objectively less healthy than you having a higher level of body fat that requires you to white knuckle your relationship with food and stay active to the point where you're not actually enjoying it anymore. When mm. you, the whole reason you got into lifting weights because you love it. And now you're clocking after every session, 30 minutes of walking on the treadmill and, and not enjoying it. it is, is that really the shape of your life? Are you living your best life? Do you like this? And then, okay, so what is influencing that decision? You believe to have self-worth or value or to be accepted or loved you have to look a certain way or weigh a certain amount. And I think most people, when they can recognize that, they go, that's, that's not what I believe. That's not who I want to be. That's not what I want to be a victim to. And I think that that's the, the starting point to a long mm-hmm. process of enjoying, or, or I, say, I should say, appreciating their body when it's fully functioning and finding acceptance and eventually enjoyment and, 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 and liking what, what they look like in the off season and seeing that that represents all the things they do care about. If they can connect their off season physique to their values, um, like, oh, that's when I'm strong. That's when I yeah. feel good. That's when mm-hmm. I have a great relationship. I'm, I'm present with my family instead of thinking about my next meal. Yeah, it's great to be in shape because that's when I succeed and I love my sport, but it's kind of like Icarus. Like I, I, I'm going to go to the sun sometimes, but I don't want to burn up and crash to the earth. And I think that helps people understand why I recommend not competing every year. That's mm. why I recommend people purposely gaining body fat as soon as they're done with their last show for the season mm. um, and not trying to stay lean and, and not really basing their identity around being a bodybuilder, but appreciating that, my, that I, I can be a bodybuilder. I'm really good at that. And I get a lot of meaning out of that. However, if I try to be a bodybuilder to the exclusivity of the rest of my life, my life collapses and I can no longer bodybuild. Yeah, totally. And I, I really like how it's focusing more on what the body can do rather than what the body looks like, right? Because when you are in off season or you're not particularly, you know, or you're kind of gearing up to your next event and you might be a couple of kilos over your kind of race weight, for example, that is when you are strong and you've got that muscle and you've got the fuel required to do the workout and you can really appreciate what your body can do in that instance. And I often talk about this with clients like, because running and endurance sport is so intricately tied to body weight, there's a lot of negative connotations around being a runner for that reason or running as a sport but I would like to see it kind of tipped on its head in in that using food as a fuel to support your best performance. And it doesn't, your best performance isn't about what you weigh on the scale. It's about what you can kind of achieve in your sessions and hitting that, hitting those metrics. So it's, yeah, there are so many parallels I see between 
who you work with in your sport and who I work with in my sport, but then also that middle ground of just the people we see in everyday life, just trying to um, reach their goals with body composition, but actually just be a healthy, happy human. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, um, it's one of those things that's very, when you're in the midst of it, it's very difficult to, to see it. Yeah. Um, you often, it's unfortunate that by the time your partner or your family uh, points it out, you've probably gone pretty far astray of, of how you'd like to be if you could, you know, float above the world and look down at your, at your behavior and the way you're being. So that's, I think, one of my roles as a coach. I can't have the realization for my mm. clients. You know, we can't do that. It's, even if we could, it wouldn't be effective. That's the, the quote unquote secret of therapy is, you know, the therapist helps you have these realizations and that's what true behavior change and, 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 and new, new views of self come from. Mm. So I think, pointing out the, that, that, that dissonance, you know, like, like you just said, you know, you said this about how you feel, then you said how you felt after you weighed, those don't match. What do you think about that? Mm. Um, that's how you do it. And yeah. I kind of pointing out each time, um, like when they say I'm in the best shape of my life, like, well, are you though? You know, mm. and having them think about that, it helps kind of break that cycle. Uh, it's, it's an important thing. And anyone who works with any sport that, asks people to manipulate their way they look or what they weigh, or it's a large part of the culture of the sport. I think it's really important for you to be aware of just how much uh, stress and potential for harm there is, even though there's a great potential for, for positives. And it's good to have some connections in your professional network with uh, someone who is a clinical nutritionist and who, who or someone else who, who, who is also uh, experienced with eating psychology or eating disorders. Mm -hmm. If there's like one thing, if someone's listening to this, like, oh my God, I didn't realize there's all this potential harm. Um, have those people in your professional network, having an eating disorder specialist, have a therapist, have mm. a, uh, someone who is, you know, a clinical nutritionist or, 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 or dietitian who, who understands these things and can help people so that you're not trying to do things that uh, you, you aren't trained for or don't have the experience or the scope to, to, to address. For sure. And, and if I just circle back to something you, you said, just to finish up on with um, the intuitive eating piece, like it sounds to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, did that take practice for you, Eric, the trust and just doing it without the tracking? How did that, you know, how long did it take for you to feel like you were really confident, even within that January, February? Because I know, obviously, as you got more towards your competition, you were much more structured around it. But were you nervous about doing it initially or what was your kind of experience with it? I had a few testing grounds. So um, in 2012, when I moved to New Zealand from the States, I had been tracking on my fitness pal. I had a ridiculous streak. I think it was like over a thousand days, but with just a few gaps of when a holiday would happen, I had been tracking for five years. Mm. Um, so food scale when I was at home, eyeballing when I went out to eat, trying to hit targets, uh, knowing where I was at for five years. And excuse me, when I moved to New Zealand, I was like, look, they're not going to have the same foods. I'm not planning on getting on a bodybuilding stage for the entirety of my, my master's and PhD. Why am I doing this? Mm. And it, it does create, like, I was really good at it. I knew how to do it. And I think I had minimized the amount of stress that I could minimize, but like I had an unplanned event come up. I would still cause like eensy bits of resentment that I'd be like, that's ridiculous. I shouldn't be feeling that, you know? Mm. So I stopped tracking in uh, near the end of 2012 when I came to New Zealand, I realized like, I can't not know what I'm eating now. You know, I, I have a general idea of my protein intake, my calorie intake. 
Um, and I also got to develop an awareness of my satiety and hunger. And for the first time, probably started to rely on them again. Mm. And it was an interesting pattern. I had an initial small amount of weight gain when I first came to New Zealand, maybe a couple kilos. Mm -hmm. And the next thing I knew, I think I had one of my powerlifting competitions where I was competing in the 93s. I weighed in at like 89.2. Oh, wow. And I was like, you know, like I probably need to eat more. Like, yeah. like my, my, that was, I think 2015 or 2014. So I, mm -hmm. after a couple of years, I had trended all the way down from 94, 95 down to like 89, 90 at mm. kind of my just weight stable, not worrying about it, uh, eating normally after kind of relearning how to eat, uh, but still following some of the patterns. I think just my portion sizes had gone down. So that was very interesting. And then in 2018, actually 2017 and 2018, I purposely got up to hundred kilos and it took me a while. It took me about six months, uh, 16 months, I think. And, uh, then I was like trying to get as big as possible. I was doing less powerlifting focused training, a lot more bodybuilding. Cause I knew I was going to compete in 2019. So I wanted to have a really successful off season before I jumped into competing. And, but I also didn't want to start my prep at hundred kilos. I wanted mm. to start it closer to 90. So in April of 2018, and then in October of 2018, I did two brief cuts and I did them without tracking. I just basically stopped eating out mm -hmm. and changed my food behavior so that it was lead to habitually lower calorie intake. And I dropped like four kilos both times without nice. effort. So I had done it for many cuts. I had been living that way for a while. And I was like, oh, I can just repeat what I did for those mini cuts and basically until it stops working or I get hungry and then start doing uh, tracking macros again. And I think that's basically what happened. I think there was also the piece that I didn't anticipate that I'm nervous about not being optimal here. Like I'm, you know, the closer I got to competition, the more the psychotic internal bodybuilder who, who wants to, uh, to, 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 to win, uh, you know, took over a little bit. I was like, look, let's, let's track. And I was like, fine, you know, at the very least it'll be a safety blanket for me. Mm. So, yeah, I think, I think that it is something whether you come from a sporting background or whether you come from being in the general population in the Western world, um, you're exposed to external cues that can supplant your normal uh, intuition. And that's why like mindful eating is the, is not the control group. Mm. You know, intuitive eating isn't the control group. When you look at these studies, it's an intervention. Mm. You have dietitians who are trained in these practices typically who teach that group through multiple like counseling sessions how to do this, how to get in tune with satiety, how to get in tune with their hunger, uh, teach them the 10 principles of intuitive eating, which is a, you know, an actual practice in dietetics, uh, or teach them how to be mindful, um, show them how to eat in a non-distracted way, how to think, how to take time. And that ends up being an intervention that typically results in, you know, weight neutral for, mm -hmm. for intuitive eating. And some of the mindful eating has actually been used as weight loss interventions without instructing a calorie deficit necessarily, but giving them some guidance along with uh, mindful eating and actually results in weight loss. Mm. So, uh, to answer your question more directly, I had a lot of years to use this in, in much less risky and, and, and time sensitive, uh, ways, mm. uh, including both gaining weight and losing weight. So I think for someone who is interested in maybe trying something that they would traditionally use, if it fits your macros for, I would say, try going with a more quote unquote intuitive approach. Uh, on something that has a less less cost or less risk or doesn't scare you emotionally first, yeah. like just day-to-day -day life. Yeah. Um, and see how it goes. And I think as well, just to 
to add a couple of thoughts on that is that if someone isn't experienced in intuitive eating, I guess a lot of the pushback from about intuitive eating is that it's very difficult to be intuitive when you're in a, an environment that has these hyper palatable foods because you are losing touch with what is real hunger, what is blood sugar response, what is energy crash, things like that. Um, so I, I love the idea of intuitive eating but I also like to kind of couch that kind of mindfulness in and around, you know, making sure you're hitting protein, making sure that you've, you've got good, and this comes back to the volume because I'm talking to people about intuitive eating in the context of weight loss most of the time, actually. So mm -hmm. getting in the foods, which we know are going to provide more satiety, yet being mindful about how you feel when you eat. So you're not governed by those other foods, which are just going to make you hungry, even make you hungrier when you eat them rather than satisfy you. So I suppose people like us with intuitive eating, who've had a number of years of personal experience and, and also have pretty good diets. So we're kind of a bit more protected, if you like, from the hyper palatable kind of food environment I think for other people having a couple of cues around protein and and um, fiber and stuff can be really helpful too no I totally agree there's a, a paper I recently wrote with uh, Jake Lenardin and Katerina Pernjack called the toward a new paradigm of nutrition and physique sport mm. um, and I always butcher the name it's something very similar to that um, I didn't want to call it intuitive eating outright because for those who aren't familiar intuitive eating like TM is a, is a framework that's weight neutral. Uh, Evelyn Triboli, a uh, registered dietitian, created it along with her, her partner, who's, um, God, her name is escaping me at the moment. Um, but uh, they did, a, they created this like 10 principles and it is something that you absolutely train people. And, you know, kind of in our space, you and I, Mickey, like our extended space, we think of like, hey, if you've tracked and if you've, you know, got these nutrition habits and you're good to go for it. But I think you, you also need training if you haven't had those just to understand intuitive eating because, both of those are different types of external cues, you know, like mm. hitting macros on my fitness pal or being, you know, largely controlled or, or heavily influenced, I should say, probably more accurately by the, you know, hedonistic and obesogenic food, food environment we live in. In either case, though, you need to be taught these principles. And that that is a weight neutral approach. So mm. I think when people fully buy into and use intuitive eating TM, um, they're, they have to get to that point where they go like, you know, right now is not the time for me to try to lose weight. These mm. principles are for me to like recalibrate and get back to quote unquote normal. Yeah, and, nice. and, you know, if I'm not, you know, experiencing like PTSD from all the previous failed attempts of weight loss and all the other diet experiences I've had that, that led me to this place where I need to not try to lose weight to get back on point and weight loss might be beneficial or something I care about in the future. Great. I can cross that bridge when I get there. So anyway, in our paper, the paradigm of uh, nutrition and, and physique sport, I describe it like a modified intuitive eating approach with uh, sports supportive behaviors. So instead mm -hmm. of here's your grams per kg of protein and carbohydrates, like you can go read those papers. I've written those two, but that's more kind of understanding the theoretical and physiological needs. But for actually, what do I do? I think it should be more qualitative. It should be behavioral and finding the, the combination of food choices and environmental changes that result in an appropriate auto-regulation, like you know, eating more energy dense foods when you need to gain weight, eating less energy dense foods when you want to maintain or, or have like a shortcut and then actually moving towards something that's not intuitive and, and is tracking and more regimented and, and, uh, and controlled when you need to lose substantial weight past the point that is sustainable. 
those kind of can exist in a, in a, in a cohesive framework, which we, mm. we proposed. So I, I totally agree. I think it's a really important skill for anyone to learn just to understand basic nutritional competence, you know, like what, what is food labels? Like what is carbs? What is calories? What is fat? What are some of these big picture understandings? Um, what foods for me personally make me feel full, satiated, satisfied, uh, and how can I create a lifestyle around that? And then what are my triggers? What, what things in the, you know, obesogenic environment am I most likely to get triggered by or affected by, et cetera. Mm. And then that is what might look like. So if someone does want to take an intuitive approach to, uh, to weight loss, exactly what you describe is, is, is I think first port of call instead mm. of like going right BMR equation activity, you know, multi multiplier, and then we cut, uh, 600 calories based on, we want to lose 0.5% of your body weight per week and go yeah. Yeah. instead. It's like, Hey, let's try to change your habits and your environment and your day-to-day -day life and your perspectives. And you know what, if you lose weight, great, but let's focus on the process and it probably will result in, in weight loss, but it also gives so many more wins. Yeah. Like if eating a vegetable or a fruit with every meal and having a serving of protein and having a stable meal structure, hitting a step count, exercising, meditating, getting eight hours of sleep. If that's like seven things and I'm not even near all the things we might actually counsel someone to do where you can have a win that day, you can get that, that equivalent of the like button or, yeah. or those, those little Facebook games that distract you from work where you're like planting stuff or raising animals or escaping and getting the treasure, like all the way video games work, like those little endorphin wins and, and, and achievements unlocked. You have a ton of those every day, but if it's just the scale, man, you're, you're, you can have a bad day even when, even when everything's going right, just because water weight wasn't, wasn't your friend. hundred um, percent. Yeah. And I think as well that a lot of people think that they want to know the calories and they think that they want to track macros, but they don't realize like people think about food. People don't think in macros, you know, so it's so much easier and so much easier for the person if they are just thinking about food rather than, am I hitting this number of calories and this, this amount of protein and, and things like that. And if anyone in New Zealand is interested in intuitive eating, I'm pretty sure that um, my friend down in Christchurch, Sarah Lake, she's actually just completed her course in intuitive eating. And I know there'll be many practitioners around, but she's a nutritionist and, and um, this is something that she's really interested in as well. And I, yeah, you're, you're so right, Eric, it's such a, it like within itself, it's a practice or a skill to kind of learn. And the more you understand it and learn from people who actually understand it themselves, probably the better someone will be able to approach it and and do it successfully rather than kind of be let down by other things around them maybe too. No, that's very well said. I totally agree. Eric, I've taken up a ridiculous amount of your time. Um, and this conversation went as I would have, as I totally predicted in my head, nowhere where I thought it would. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, we covered actually a lot of what I thought, but this, it's such a, it was such a rich conversation in your experience and that physique, your own experience and what you, um, uh, what you kind of witness with your kind of clients, which is, you know, really practical, for, even for people, obviously not in that physique space. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm going to um, Google search and find those studies that you talked about with regards to rigid restraint with your papers on the nutrition paradigm with that Kevin Hall paper as well. And, and hopefully anything else, which I, I have missed out. Um, where can people find you on the interwebs? 
Absolutely. You can find me at uh, 3dmusclejourney.com. That's the number three, the letter D, then musclejourney.com. From there, you can find links to my books on nutrition and training, uh, monthly applications and strength sport, which is a monthly research review on stuff in this kind of realm mm-hmm. um, with myself and Dr. Zerdos, Dr. Trexler and Greg Knuckles. And you can also find links to our 3DMJ podcast, which I mentioned, our blogs that we do. For more daily content, I'm pretty active on Instagram. You can follow me at Helms3DMJ. And if you love podcasts, like I said, there's a 3DMJ one, but I also, myself and Omar Isif, we have Iron Culture, which kind of explores very holistically the whole iron game uh, in, in all facets from history, science, and culture. I love it. And I always learn so much when I go and listen to your podcast and not just about strength and conditioning, a whole host of things, which you know, I really appreciate just as a lifelong learner. It's awesome. Well, thank you very much. I mean, it means a lot to me, Mickey, especially coming from you. Great. Lovely. So team, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did chatting to Eric and um, unsurprisingly I could chat to him all day really, so interesting. He is not hard to find on the internet if you want to track him down and he's always really open to taking queries and and things like that. You can find him on Instagram at Helms3DMJ. He is also the co-founder of the Mass Science Monthly Journal which is a monthly research review in the strength, conditioning, nutrition field um, which is great I subscribe to that. Eric also has his own podcast as you would have heard us talk about Iron Culture which again I find super interesting and pretty bloody funny actually a lot of the time. So that's Eric Helms for you and next week which is in the almost the new year we have Professor Frederick Loire who is my go-to for anything related to red meat, environment and health. And just on the back of the Heart Foundation statement in and around what we should do with our red meat intake, I thought I would reach out and just touch base with uh, Professor Lavoie and just get his take on, you know, where red meat should sit in a healthy diet. So I hope you really enjoy that. Until then, you can find me at Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition or over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin or jump on to my website mickeywillardin.com and if you're interested in trying to do a little bit different or a little bit better with your food intake uh, sign up to one of my meal plans. We've got a real food nutrition plan, I have a monthly weight loss plan, I've got a ketogenic longevity plan and also an athlete plan which provides meal plans weekly emails and blogs, a weekly forum and also hundreds of recipes and access to to ask me individual questions through our online nutrition platform and that's actually a really great way to support the podcast as well because I know some of you have been asking me about that and if you enjoy the podcast please head over to your favorite podcast platform and leave us a five-star review because that just means that more people will be aware of Wikipedia and it'll just help kind of spread the word. We'd really appreciate that. So um, until next week, have a great rest of your week. Merry Christmas and uh, look forward to seeing you next week.